right now on Matter of Fact, keeping America from falling apart. When you get up in the morning and you, you turn on the lights, maybe you turn on the heat and run the hot water, you expect all those systems to work. How the nation's investment in critical infrastructure could save your job, your time, and your money. Plus, Sylvia Mendez was just seven years old when she was turned away from a California public school. Don't you know we don't allow Mexicans in the school? What happened when her parents took a stand and went to court? Judge McCormick said, separate is not equal. The first time that had been spoken. And this chef and owner ran a busy Manhattan restaurant until the pandemic shut it down. I had probably 90 to 100 people uh, coming through these doors every night, and overnight, it all disappeared. Now, she's making a comeback. The starting pay is now $25 per hour per person. What she's doing to change the way restaurants work. I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. If you're trying to keep track of the congressional maneuvering around the president's trillion-dollar infrastructure bill, here are the cliff notes. The bipartisan bill passed the Senate in August. Now House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is promising to pass it by the end of the month after progressives in her party have forced a delay. They want action on a separate bill that includes spending for things like child care and climate change. Meanwhile, communities across the country are without funds to pay for needed repairs, repairs due to age and made worse by extreme weather events. In Iowa, with more structurally deficient bridges than any other state, inspectors are discouraged with the lack of funding for maintenance. It can be frustrating at some days when you know you have a limited budget and you see that you have more, more to do than, than what you have the budget for. In Boston, commuters are worried about the condition of their train stations. Some platforms and stairs are so worn, rusted portions are giving way. I heard a cracking noise, like kind of like a loud cracking noise, and I just happened to look like that, and the piece came down. I just don't want it to happen to somebody else. In New York, more than 400 subway entrances are at risk from extreme rain. A think tank is proposing a canal system. So where do we go from here? Joseph Schofer is Professor Emeritus of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Northwestern University. He's also the host of a podcast called The Infrastructure Show. Professor Schofer, so nice to have you. May I start by talking about your podcast? It's been 11 seasons, and I'm curious what you talk about and who do you think your audience is? So I talk about uh, infrastructure, uh, elements of infrastructure, very specific topics that... Um, feed my curiosity. I'd like to know how things work. A number of my professional colleagues listen and, and give me a, a lot of good feedback. I get feedback from high school students who say that was so interesting and I always wanted to know about that and how can I learn more about that. I want to ask you a question about this number that comes from the ASCE. They're saying that um, at the family level, the cost is about $3,300, the, the cost of inadequate infrastructure. I'm assuming that's some kind of an average, but explain that number roughly to me. Well, so some of that is is cost to fix things that break because the infrastructure isn't working well. So uh, automobile repairs that may otherwise be unnecessary. Some of that, I would say a lot of it is is delays because infrastructure doesn't have the capacity. And there's also damage that, that happens when infrastructure fails. If the electric grid fails, even in the case of a storm, well, that's a loss to the to the con consumer and presumably some infrastructure investment 
uh, could reduce that cost. Can you tell me specifically the ways in which climate change is creating this need? There's a strong pattern of drought, literally from the Midwest all the way to the, to the West Coast, and make, makes it much more likely that you're going to have wildfires. Um, that's arguably attributed, attributable to climate change. I think the more direct attribution is to floods. Floods due to sea level rise on, on the coast, particularly the East Coast. Uh, some of those are nuisance floods that don't uh, do a huge amount of property damage. And also uh, storm-driven floods, floods in the Midwest due to heavy rainfall or, or unexpected uh, melting of, of the snowfall. And the Midwest has been susceptible to floods for, for, for many decades, and that's clearly getting worse. And water damage and floods and storm surges on the Gulf Coast. 25% of all critical infrastructure in the U.S., is at risk of failure due to flooding. Do you think that number is accurate? Because that sounds horrifying to me. Well, I think it's intended to, to sound horrifying to you. And maybe it'll get you and, and all the rest of us to, to take some action. So what's critical infrastructure? It's the stuff that you and I need to function on, on a daily basis. So the way I would characterize it is uh, when you get up in the morning and you, you turn on the lights, maybe you turn on the heat and run the hot water, you expect all those systems to work. And so you're dealing with network systems, grids of, 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 of energy and, and water, and they're all dependent on infrastructure to bring that resource to your house. And so we need data, we need science, and we need the money to do something about that. I'm curious about the jobs connected to infrastructure. There are lots of ways you can create jobs by building in infrastructure. What matters is build the right infrastructure, put the money to use in such a way that there's lasting value that's produced. And the job benefit and the economic benefit comes from um, in improving mobility of people because you, the roads are better or the transit is better or the bridges are, are have, have more capacity or having more reliable electrical grids so you don't have to buy a generator for your house or for your office or for your hospital in order to keep activities going. That's the long-term value, and, it, and it's a value that exceeds the value of short-term jobs. Professor Schofer, thank you so much for talking with me. Really appreciate it. Next on Matter of Fact, in 1940s California, this little girl was turned away from her local public school. You can't leave these children here. She says, why not? Because we don't take Mexicans here. How her family's legal battle became a landmark case. Judge McCormick said, separate is not equal. The first time that had been spoken, separate is not equal. And later, the symphonic marriage of technology and classical music, how artificial intelligence was able to finish something Beethoven couldn't. Back to matter of fact, in 1954, the U.S. Supreme Court ended racial segregation in schools with Brown versus the Board of Education. But seven years earlier, a federal circuit court in California ruled that school segregation was unconstitutional. The California case, Mendez versus Westminster, focused on Mexican-American children denied access to white schools. Seven-year-old Sylvia Mendez was at the center of that case. Now she's 85 years old and reflects on her place in history. We sent matter-of-fact correspondent Laura Chavez to meet the woman who helped pave the way for integrated schools. Oh my God, I see myself. <laughs> Sylvia Mendez may seem like any other Hispanic grandmother, but behind that smile is a woman who changed history. 
My name is Sylvia Mendez, daughter of Gonzalo, and Felicitas Mendez. Sylvia was the little girl at the center of Mendez versus Westminster, a little-known case that paved the way for integrated schools before Brown versus Board of Education. In 1945, Sylvia's father, Gonzalo Mendez, asked her aunt Sally to enroll her and her brothers in a school just down the road. My aunt Sally went up to the clerk and she said, uh, you can't leave these children here. She said, why not? Because we don't take Mexicans here. These are the older kids in the Mexican school. At the time, schools in California were segregated and dark-skinned children with Hispanic last names weren't allowed at the 17th Street Elementary. That school was just for white students. Gonzalo, Jeronimo, Alicia, and Virginia and I would have to walk into the barrio to go to the Mexican school. So this is where you would walk? And this is where the school used to be, right here. Sylvia's father went to the school administration, but everyone gave him the same answer. No Mexicans allowed. Gonzalo then recruited four families, one from each school district in the county to join the fight. The Mendez family then put up their own money and hired attorney David Marcus, who had just won a case to integrate public swimming pools. And he just won that case with the 14th Amendment, and it's in the Los Angeles Times. Once the Mendez family hired a lawyer, the school board made Gonzalo and Felicitas an offer, drop the case, and Sylvia and her brothers could go to the white school. But the Mendez family knew this wasn't just about their kids anymore. It was about the quality of education for all children, like these students, also at Hoover Elementary, the Mexican school. So talk to me about some of the differences between what they taught at the white school and the Mexican school. Well, in the Mexican school, they were trying to teach you how to speak English, even though we already spoke English, and how to take care of a house and how to cook, because they figured, you know, they'll end up being mates, you know. They weren't teaching us, you know, academics like reading, writing, arithmetic. The Mendez's attorney argued the case based on the 14th Amendment, which guarantees equal treatment for all U.S. citizens. After a two-week court battle, Judge McCormick said, separate is not equal. The first time that had been spoken, separate is not equal, and they won the first case. The school board appealed the decision all the way to the California Supreme Court. And in the end, the court ruled in favor of the Mendez family. Shortly after, the governor of California, Earl Warren, signed a law prohibiting segregation in all public schools, five years before Brown versus Board of Education was decided. I received that one in Mexico City. Sylvia has received dozens of awards and honors for her work and the work of her parents, including the Medal of Freedom in 2011. But the honor she's most excited about is the one in her hometown, the Mendez Tribute Park. Still under construction will be a reminder of her family's legacy. This is a beautiful space. It is. Their win meant that Sylvia did go to the white school. She graduated and became a nurse. Ooh, that's when you graduated. That was when I graduated. This story struck a chord with me because of my own family's journey. In the early 1950s, my grandparents took a leap of faith and brought my father and his siblings to the U.S. from Mexico in the hope of giving their kids and future generations the best education available. My dad was actually the first one to graduate college of his immediate family, and it was such an accomplishment for my grandparents to see this happen because it wouldn't have happened without them being brave enough to cross over into the U.S., 
but it also wouldn't have happened if you weren't brave enough to walk in those doors. It wasn't me, it was my parents. I'm a storyteller, telling the story of Mendes versus Westminster, part of my history. In Westminster, California, I'm Laura Chavez, for Matter of Fact. Coming up on Matter of Fact, restaurants are opening their doors again after facing tough times. Most of my colleagues are struggling to find staff. It's, it's been really hard. So this chef and owner is paying $25 an hour, minimum. It's the only way we're gonna get through this or we will end up having a shattered industry. And still ahead, Beethoven left behind some unfinished business. 40 sketches, pages of notes that document the beginnings of his 10th symphony. How artificial intelligence experts took his notes and turned them into a technological masterpiece. As pandemic restrictions ease and the number of people vaccinated increases, theaters, concerts and restaurants are filling up. Many eateries that shut down during the lockdown have opened up again. But owners face a problem that could be devastating for the industry. They can't find staff. Three out of four restaurant operators say recruitment and retention are their toughest challenges. Rising labor and food costs also mean higher menu prices. One New York City restaurant owner, hit hard when the pandemic began, had to let all her staff go in March of 2020. Now, with an innovative approach, she's making a comeback. My name is Amanda Cohen, and I am the chef owner of Dirt Candy, an all-vegetable restaurant in Manhattan. In March 2020, I ran a really busy, successful restaurant, and overnight, it all disappeared. We closed our restaurant down, and I had no idea what was going to happen. In a perfect world, I would press the reset button and, and start all over again. When I closed the restaurant, I had this idea that I wasn't going to reopen the same restaurant I closed, actually, because I'd sort of left us all without a safety net. Like, didn't we just get it? We've been open since the end of May, uh, and it's been working great. The starting pay at Dirt Candy is now $25 per hour per person, which is a huge jump for certainly my back of house. We increased our prices about 30%, and we're able to have a few less staff members. We can now offer them health insurance if they want it. We're offering extra sick days, paid holidays. Wait, let me have one. Are these, have these already gone in the dehydrator? Yep. I want to be successful. I don't want to have a revolving door of staff. And the only way I could figure out how to do that was to treat my staff like professionals. I don't think the labor shortage is just about wages. I think it's a lot about working conditions. From what I know of my staff and other people's staff members that didn't return to the industry, they actually went back to school. They're not staying at home. They're not lazy. They just don't want to come back and work in a restaurant where they aren't appreciated, where the hours are long, and where there isn't a lot of stability. I do have a non-tipping, fine dining restaurant, so we can raise our prices enough that our customers won't blink. But I do think that there's some aspects of what we're doing that can be replicated. Certainly changing your work culture, maybe not paying your staff as much as I'm paying them, but paying them more. Most of my colleagues are struggling to find staff. It's, it's been really hard, and a lot of them are doing what I'm doing, which is not just increasing wages, but making their restaurants better for their employees. It's the only way we're going to get through this, or we will end up having a shattered industry. 
Next, on Matter of Fact, the entire world watched scientists develop a COVID-19 vaccine in record time. How those breakthrough discoveries are tackling some of the world's other deadly diseases. To stay up to date with Matter of Fact, sign up for our newsletter at matteroffact.tv. Welcome back to Matter of Fact. Are we in an era of vaccine acceleration? The entire world watched scientists develop the COVID-19 vaccine in record time. With global collaboration, it happened by the end of 2020, just eight or nine months after the first trial doses were administered. Before that, the fastest vaccine developed was for the mumps, and that took four years back in the 1960s. More breakthroughs are on the way. Moderna is working with Scripps Research Scientists in California to make a vaccine to fight HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. They're using some of the same RNA delivery system that's in the COVID-19 vaccine. That method teaches our cells how to make a protein that triggers an immune response in our bodies. The first clinical trial is scheduled for next month. That announcement comes on the heels of the World Health Organization's approval of the world's first malaria vaccine. The mosquito-borne virus afflicts nearly 229 million people each year. The efficacy rate is about 30%. Experts say that's a start. And in Cuba, another vaccine milestone. Experts there say the country will reach full COVID immunization of its 11 million citizens by the end of the year. They're using a vaccine that was developed on the island. It's one that has not received approval by the World Health Organization. Coming up next, rollover Beethoven. Can AI computers really replicate the composer's creative genius? are the famous opening notes of Ludwig van Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. The German maestro wrote a total of nine symphonies, but when he died in 1827, he left behind 40 sketches, pages of notes that document the beginnings of his Tenth Symphony. Fast forward and a group of musicology and artificial intelligence experts use those drawings to finish what Beethoven never could. He was a radical innovator, always taking the new technologies of his time, and now we're taking the new technologies of our time to advance musical creation. The team fed Beethoven's music and sketches into an AI platform, and this is the result. Soon the world will hear Beethoven's complete 10th symphony when it's performed in Hamburg, Germany in about two weeks. Don't forget, you heard it here first. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien. We'll see you back here next week. If you missed our top stories about the real cost of repairing our decaying infrastructure, how Mexican-Americans fought for integrated schools 75 years ago, a restaurant making a comeback with a plan to pay workers $25 an hour, and how scientists are speeding the development of needed vaccines, just go to matteroffact.tv. And listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI, Pluto, and YouTube.